Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Maps Weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently for this Tuesday show. Instead of talking about the news of the week, I have a special guest because when someone tells me, hey, I want to come on the show and talk about season two of The Bear, I say yes, especially when it's it's this person. He doesn't really need an introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. He is a food and wine best new chef, a James Beard Award winner, a partner in Thoroughfare Hospitality, the company behind Anvil, Refuge, Better Luck Tomorrow, Squabble, and most importantly for our purposes, Theodore Rex. Justin Yu, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me talk about a TV show. Yeah, I, I mean, when you said, I want to come on the show and talk about season two of The Bear... I said yes immediately, but let me just ask you the obvious question. Why did you want to come on and talk about season two of The Bear? Oh, do I have to explain what The Bear is before we do this? Do I have to explain that The Bear is a show on Hulu set in the world of a Chicago restaurant? Do I, I I feel like if you're listening to the show, you probably have already watched The Bear. And if you, and this is going to be Spoiler City. So if you haven't watched season two of The Bear and you plan to, you may not want to listen to this. All right, that is that is enough context. Justin, go. Why did you want to talk about the bear? Yeah, well, I was actually we were in the middle of putting a the Italian beef sandwich on at the menu um, at Better Look Tomorrow, and I actually had not seen the second season yet, so I was in the middle of it and really enjoying it. Um, and you know, originally when we put on the Italian beef over at BLT because of because. Honestly, people kept on asking me if I had watched the season one of The Bear. Uh, I was, I, it started off as something that's like very tongue-in-cheek. Um, but I thought it was important because I really think that this, you know, this TV show, more so than any other movie, more so than any other TV show about restaurants and chefs and cooks, had like the most accurate depiction of what it would be like to work in an actual restaurant and maybe of a restaurant that is aiming to be a high-end fine dining, maybe uh, charge a little bit more money type of restaurant and the type of people that work in it. Um, I think it was important to point out all the detail work um, that they did um, for both season one and season two of The Bear. Um, And, you know, just even little things like if you're watching it, uh, like they're drinking out of quart containers. Uh, they're important, the importance of sitting down for staff meal. Um, and kind of just, you know, I thought it was a really interesting dynamic between, um, how someone came into, uh, working in the restaurant industry and hoping to cook, uh, at a fine dining level, um, and how their life, uh, kind of nuanced its way into opening up a restaurant. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that sets the stage very well for this conversation we're going to have. Let me just start with with Carmi, because you guys have some things in common in terms of your, well, the character's background and, and your actual life. You stodged in Copenhagen, and you have won similar awards. He he is a James Beard Award winner. You, you are a James Beard Award winner. He is a Food & Wine Best New Chef. You are a Food & Wine Best New Chef. He worked at some really great Michelin-starred restaurants. Uh, before obviously coming home to Chicago, you worked in California at at a few places that were highly notable. Uh, before 
coming home to Houston and opening Oxheart. So do you feel like a kinship with him? Do you kind of see anything about yourself in at least professionally in, in terms of Carmi? Definitely professionally. I think that uh, him opening up the restaurant after he's kind of won all of these awards uh, is a little bit different, but I would say it's just like that same kind of desire and drive to do something for yourself. I really felt that kinship with Carmi. I think he's doing his maybe a little bit more for like a family reason. Um, and then, um, you know, finding a way to do it for himself and trying to find that balance. And I think we'll talk about this pretty consistently in this, trying to find that balance, not only in the food, but then also in, you know, what a desire for life is, what a relationship is with both his employees um, and, you know, his personal life as well with, with his brother, his mother, and, uh, you know, the, his staff. Um, I really think that, it, you know, obviously there are, over-exaggerations for the sake of TV is a high, high amount of drama. So you don't get to see all like, like the little, <laughs> all the very banal things that you have to do to work in a restaurant like that. Um, but you do get to see kind of like that really like strong interior dialogue of, you know, is, is this what I want to be doing? Um, at what level do I want to be doing it? How obsessive should I be about this? Um, versus, uh, uh, versus like what's actually there on the plate and what the expectations are. Yeah. I mean, again, this is, this is a spoiler full conversation. Obviously the last episode kind of ends, you know, we, we get kind of foreshadowing at the end of episode nine, uncle Jimmy Carmi says to him, you know, I have a girlfriend and, and uncle Jimmy gives him this speech about how you've got to be really committed to this. You've got to make this your, your focus. And, and, and uncle Jimmy's like, you know, Carmi says, well, I have a girlfriend and, and Uncle Jimmy goes, I'm happy for you, but uh oh, you know, watch out. And and then, of course, you know, it all it all kind of ends in tears in episode 10, where he he kind of comes to this realization that even spending a little bit of time with Claire Bear has been a distraction. He he never got the handle on the the walk in replaced. He didn't order enough forks. He didn't know about the art hanging on the wall. You know, he missed that text from from Natalie, his sister, who's his uh, business partner in the restaurant. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to open you up for too much like uh, psychological introspection, but, but do you, do you kind of feel that push pull of like, you know, we always, we talk about work-life balance, but, but at the same time, like it's your name on the door. And if you want this place to be successful, you really, it has to have all of your attention, at least, at least when you're opening, at least in the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think that was very much reflective on when when we were opening up Oxheart, like um all I really want to do oh, I was obsessed about the restaurant consistently. Um even to the last detail to, you know, like I should pay attention to how much the, you know, silverware costs versus, you know, paying attention to, you know, having any semblance of a family life. You know, uh I in that in that way, you know, I think a lot of chefs find themselves in the same position as Carmi where you're like man, this is what I've been working on my entire life. This is the only thing I know how to do. It's the only thing a lot of the times that I'm actually good at. Um, and having any semblance of a regular life or a quote unquote regular life is actually a detraction because, because you don't spend the same amount of time, uh, you know, working on the restaurant with the types of people, with the people that work with you. 
And I think that's a really interesting distinction because a lot of times chefs feel like highly indebted to their staff because of how hard they work. And honestly, most of the time also for how little on the amount of money that they make, um, which is, you know, obviously we've been trying to fix that as a, as a industry for a very long time. Um, but, you know, you, instead of, you know, uh, having the ability to pay them extra money, you end up, you know, working with them side by side. And so, you know, any sort of pull away from that attention, um, I know that in that like last dialogue, is like I've only been good at this one thing. Uh, there's only been one thing that I've always wanted to do with my life, um, and that was it. And unfortunately, I think the yeah, like again, spoiler alert: Claire kind of catches him uh, in a, a moment of weakness. Right. And, he has this soliloquy in the walk-in, and and the Claire is definitely not supposed to hear, but of course she does. <laughs> yeah. And and weirdly, I think that you know is he was saying that for him, and and really not for anybody else. Um, and and again, that's just that dynamic where you you're trying to find that balance and and on a day-to-day basis i'm i'm still trying to find that balance i think that fortunately for myself like you know i was able to go out on a friday night and and have dinner uh but it took i don't know 11 years to get there of 23 years of of cooking and 11 years of owning my own business to even start doing that so uh that's always i think uh the most the, the biggest um, kind of dynamic uh, in the brain of, of a chef owner or, or any business owner, honestly, on how to balance that life that you want to have with your family versus the life that you choose to have. All right. I want to go through, there's a, there's a few kind of key episodes or, or a few key moments in the show. I just, I just wanted to get your take on some of them. I mean, obviously I have to, I have to ask you about Marcus Stodging in Copenhagen uh at what we it's not it's not noma it doesn't right because he visits noma separately and kind of wanders through the garden it's some other unnamed restaurant with the pastry chef luca but but did you kind of you know they they obviously they filmed in copenhagen did that look like the city kind of as you remember it did that did that feel accurate on on some level i think there's there's you know a really inaccurate part uh, in the fact that like, that is not the way that Dodgers go. <laughs> you don't, you don't <laughs> quite do it at six, six o'clock in the morning. Uh, you very rarely have the attention of the pastry chef or the head pastry chef. You end up normally getting tossed with a commie or a chef de partie and they kind of just lead your day. Um, so you very rarely uh, have that actual kind of inspiration, but the city in itself is that type of, um, inspired feel. And I think that's what the biggest thing that I got from it. And I was like, they really put uh, what it's like to stage out there um, on blast where it's like, you know, you're really putting yourself out there. You're not only just taking from the kitchen that you're in, you're taking from a different way of life. That I think, uh, you know, I talked about a really long time ago where it's just, it's important to travel as a chef because it's, there's a, it's one of the very few p- p- uh, professions where you can literally do it anywhere and you can learn from anybody in it um, at all different levels. Um, you may not get paid very much or at all while you're doing it. Um, but uh, the, the push to try to like, try to learn something new or be inspired is definitely there. And I think that it did show that like Marcus just being like really engulfed uh, into uh, that way of life for at least a short period of time. But yeah, you know, uh, living on that boat and that's probably like, 
a thousand dollar a night Airbnb. <laughs> I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that's something that uh, a normal stage would be able to do. Um, but right. I feeding think feeding the, the invisible uh, cat. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that actually the the thing that uh, was really important to get out of that um, out of that episode was that he was like, man, I'm not gonna cook on this like very finite level, but it's just as important. I even think that Lucas said this. It's just as important, if not more important, to have inspired food as opposed to food just solely based on techniques. Um, and I think it, it comes comes across a lot in the menu when you see it at the end where it's like, you know, this is a, a, a food that really tells the story of, of the cooks in the kitchen and not necessarily just based on, you know, certifications and koji and all that. It, it's about the people. Right. It's it's not just something they saw in a cookbook. It's it's right. inspired by their experiences. And and we'll 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 we will definitely go through that uh before we wrap this conversation up. But the, the next one I wanted to ask you about was uh I think it's episode three where Sydney is kind of turned loose in the city of Chicago and she goes to Avec and uh Kasama and some other restaurants and kind of eats around and then we see her, you know, in the kitchen like trying to figure out that pasta dish you know, based on some of the things she's been eating. Talk talk to me about the process of sort of converting inspiration into execution or developing a recipe. I mean, especially when you're early on in your restaurant, a lot of times it's an inspiration or if not even just a straight up ripoff. Uh, finding your voice is really, really tough. And I think that they did a really good job of, again, like, you know, there's some really strong flaws in that episode, like, you know, you as the sous chef of an up, upcoming restaurant probably don't know Donnie Medaya <laughs> and stop in, <laughs> into Avec, uh, who's, who's the, he's the, uh, the owner of One Off Hospitality who owns Avec and among hundreds or like, well, like some of the best restaurants in Chicago and, and beyond. Um, you know, I don't know where she got the stomach to eat all of that, but it seems like she stopped at like eight different places. Um, but you know, that, that's the real thing. Like, you know, uh, even at Theodore Rex now, we're, uh, uh, myself and Caitlin and, um, and, uh, one of our chefs, Crank, is going to go to New York just to eat, not necessarily to do any, not to, you know, take dishes by any means, but just to kind of reset yourself. And I think that, um, them saying like, hey, we need to reset ourselves just to like try somebody else's food. I think it's really important, um, as a chef to enjoy dining out, enjoy eating other people's food. Um, so just if, if for nothing else to just enjoy yourself, but then also to just see a different perspective. But, um, but yeah, I mean, like even at Oxheart, like, you know, after being inspired by Copenhagen for so long, like it probably was a pretty direct ripoff of Relay until we really found our own voice. Um, but that's kind of how it goes. Like you, you start by, um, considering ideas of other people and and but I, I just don't think that anything just comes just you know true artistic inspiration is really hard to come by and have a really hard time even saying artistic with with food um personally i think it's a little bit more craftsmanship um and kind of like uh, in history um but you know you got to start somewhere and i thought that it was like a really a really really good way also a good way to show off Chicago, which is honestly one of one of the best food cities in the state. Yeah, I I mean I I think Chicago it's it's like 
I don't, I don't think like the city of Chicago or their tourism board or whatever paid paid for that any part of that production, but uh, I know it made me want to go eat at at all of those restaurants that she that she goes to. It just it looks so exciting and engaging in that. I mean, sequence. They have such great cooks there and such great raw products. It's like it's really, you know, between like San Francisco, Chicago, New York, it's it's really tough to pick between the three a lot of times. For a larger city, obviously, it's great foods everywhere these days, and Houston being one of them. So, all right. And then the the other episode I want to ask you about is episode seven. This is where Richie goes to Stodge, front of the house. It uh, it's 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 not identified in the uh, it's not identified in the episode as ever, which is a two star restaurant in Chicago. It's kind of it's it's sort of they sort of use that restaurant to film, but it's not it's not necessarily that restaurant. It's it's kind of a amalgamation of a bunch of places. I think Eleven Madison obviously uh place yeah, has, it has a little has linea. A, has, <laughs> yeah, a little linea, a little uh, EMP, like a little uh you know, maybe maybe uh maybe even a little bit uh, French laundry. But you know, having having dined at those restaurants and and worked at similar restaurants, I mean, what did you what was kind of your assessment of, of Richie's week uh, polishing forks and, and sourcing deep dish pizza as a surprise for a, for a customer? Yeah, definitely. Again, just would never happen in a week, but <laughs> um, yeah, you would just polish forks for the entire time and kind of just take notes and maybe follow somebody around that. That's what would happen. Um, but again, just for the sake of, of TV, I think it was to me like a good dynamic of like that aha moment. Um, a lot of times what you'll find um, both as a cook and as I think a front house person, when you kind of keep on going into maybe the more rigid um, service standards and cooking standards types of places, you, you really, really struggle um, until you really kind of get that one aha moment. Uh, sometimes it is being yelled at, or sometimes it's because you see uh, you, you see everything start to click together. And it was, it was interesting to see because I think everybody kind of has has that kind of moment where you're like, okay, I really see how this is all coming together um, in these two, three Michelin star restaurants um, and how all the little detail work kind of starts to fit together. Um, again, doesn't there's no way that you're going <laughs> to send your stodge to run, grab deep dish, deep dish pizza and <laughs> serve it. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it, it did give like this really interesting look into like not everybody gets to see that. Not everybody gets to as far as the TV show goes, like it's it's really tough to talk about, you know, all, you know, 200 people that have to be working in unison and to be following that like level of commitment to a singular idea of what dining should be at a high level or at expensive level, at least. Um and you know what it takes to to really execute um for a restaurant like that um and you know it's it's interesting to me because it's like you know richie's been working at you know the beef for such a long time he's not going to interview somebody just because he wears a suit interview somebody and think to his in his head like you know what i'm going to do i'm going to turn this napkin for this interview and see this this interviewee is going to uh is going to notice and it's, you know, and I, but I, but what I do think is, was really important about that is, again, just that idea of that level of detail um, that generally happens that needs to happen, especially if you're going to be charging that type of money and kind of uh, be uh, 
be looking to be in that Michelin star level or Michelin star style of dining. Right. I mean, Richie's the guy in the in the first episode of the first season who fires a gun in the air to calm down the the guys who are lined up for the video game tournament, right? I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, Richie's the one who may or may not have been uh, selling drugs in, in the back alley to to fund uh, whatever his lifestyle is. I mean, R- Richie's transformation in season two is, is really stunning. And when he he walks in, you know, he walks in after his, his stage is like, I wear suits now. It's like, yeah. you know, it's kind of the synthesis of, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, well, it's, it's like he, you know, the very beginning of episode one, season two is, is him being like, I don't feel like I have a place here. And, and he right. goes to this fine dining restaurant and he feels like he's being punished because he's polishing forks in a chef's coat, but he finds his purpose, you know, and, and that kind of purpose in, in front of the house, you know, it's something the show hadn't really showed us, right? Because the sandwich shop, you know, there's not a lot of front of the house interaction, but that they they would need someone like Richie. I mean, just like you've had wonderful front of the house staff throughout the history of of Oxford and Theodore Rex. It's like it it really is a team effort. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think they did a really good way of kind of describing, you know, the hours and hours and years and that it takes to get to that point in kind of little small analogies like, you know, his the fact that there's streaks on the pork. So like in, in the episode, um, the back waiter that uh, is, is kind of set to train him keeps on complaining about the streaks in the forks. And it is his detail to like, okay, well, someone's just going to be eating this food off this fork anyway. But it's just the point of like, okay, well, you know, they're here and they set aside this time. They paid this large amount of money. Um, why does the streak in the fork really matter? And that to me is like a lot of like, it, it kind of shows like, again, like that level attention of detail that it kind of, that, that restaurant tours and especially front house people have to take, um, you know, whether or not it's like walking, walking by your own parking lot and pick, picking up cigarette butts or like making sure that there's no, you know, water on the floor so that, uh, you know, you don't track it into the dining room. Um, you know, like switching out water glasses. Uh, if they're going to have sparkling water as opposed to still water, just all all those little detail work, um, I think was really well kind of like set into the framework of the fact that you know um, it takes a lot to do this. And let me just ask you about the uh, the the idea of the the surprise, the you know whether it's whether it's deep dish pizza or you know seeing that there's there's two teachers and they've been saving up for this, so we're going to send them the whole menu with the caviar and then not, not drop a check at the end of it. Uh, does that yeah, sound like surprise? <laughs> uh, even in, in restaurants that you maybe don't aspire to be of like a Michelin star level, like there's, there's like, I think they're referencing in that particular point of Madison park, who is kind of infamous for having these, these, uh, a, uh, people on staff called dream weavers. That's a really weird way. That's a weird title to have, but what they do is they research you. And they uh, kind of tailor that menu to you. But you'd be surprised on how many notes that uh, restaurants have on you as a diner. Um, something as simple as like whether or not you prefer ice in your water or, um, you know, if you prefer sitting at the bar um, or uh, what your last bottle of wine was and if you liked it or not, um, you know, what your dog's name was or is, you know. <laughs> I think I always tell people, you know, you may not remember everybody's name i have i generally have to look at faces before i remember names but if you remember like their kid's name or their dog's name 
whether pet's name, like you're <laughs> you kind of set for life with them. So, oh, so you mean when when I walk into a restaurant, someone asks me about matzah, it's not because they remember that or they follow me on Instagram. It's it's because that's in my diner notes somewhere in in Open Table or Resi. Yeah, it's a little from Colin, a little from Colin B. <laughs> All right, uh, and then uh, obviously we 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 can't we can't have this conversation without talking about. Uh, episodes nine and ten, which is kind of the the prep for the the friends and family night, and then the the service where everything uh, kind of goes haywire. You know, you've obviously you've opened your share of restaurants. Does that like frantic feeling? Does that you know it's 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 really captured by that that guitar riff of the the song "New Noise" by Refuse. That you know that's like Michael. That's your that's producer Michael. That's your cue to drop that in. By the way, you know, but like. That that like really like frantic energy, um, that that you know I've I've been around restaurants when they're opening. I've obviously never opened a restaurant, but that that felt roughly right to me. Yeah, I, I think the music is really really important there, which is funny because I actually didn't love the soundtrack for the majority of the <laughs> of, of the show um, because it, actually the person who I think had the best analogy for me that I've ever heard is, is Brandy Keys that that. Uh, I think she was open Copa at the time and she was like, um, it's like duck swimming. So it's like across the pond, you know, it looks like a duck is like kind of gliding, but if you look underneath the legs are like frantically paddling. Right. And so that, that I, I thought it was really fantastic the way that they kind of juxtaposed what it's like, like you can't keep up. The only thing you can really do is just keep on going. And I think they 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 constantly say, "Hey, hey, just keep on going," because there are constant things that explode all the time. Like a dish isn't coming out correctly, and you know this isn't wrong. Like cooks walk out at those openings. You know, so I, I've never run across they, one. They go out in the back out. alley and smoke crack. I mean, it's it's complicated, and have to get fired. Uh, yeah, and uh, and you know you just have to keep on going, but. It's, it's, it's always really interesting to be able to like, cause especially too, like at a place like Oxart where, uh, the cooks and myself spent a lot of time in, in the dining room. I think that was like a, a really big plus for Oxart and we still do that over at Theodore Rex. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because like that music that's going on, that frantic music is kind of the same thing that's going through your head when you're, when you're doing it instead of that juxtaposition of like, Okay, I'm I'm nicely presenting this dish to the guest. I'm talking about the farm. I'm smiling real big, but really all I'm thinking about is what's burning on the stove right now, or if I have to go back and fire a dish because you know someone's going to be running 30 minutes behind. Um, and so like that really like like frantic heartbeat is constantly going on during openings. It, it really, you know. It really is that frantic. I just remember the first day that we were opening up for Oxnard, we'd like, we were still touching up paint on the walls. I remember tossing like cans of paint into Justin Vance, who was a sommelier at the time, uh, and into the back of his truck, which eventually ended up spilling over and like <laughs> causing a huge mess, uh, <laughs> in, in the back of his truck. Um, and like throwing like tools and things that we didn't need. Like the tables were still being built that day. Um, you know, we hadn't tasted any of the food. I remember the first pickup we did, you know, I, I thought, you know, to myself, like, yeah, we're going to steam the spinach in, in, uh, what is like a, a it's called a, uh, a thermomix, which is basically a blender that can warm up too. 
and it had the steamer basket. It's like, oh, this will be easy. We'll just use the Thermomix. And then we tried to do it for the first dish, hadn't tasted the dish altogether yet. And then like, and I was like, oh, okay, well, this is not going to work. And so you just are constantly trying to find things that work, uh, basically at every single turn. And it's, it's, a, it's really one of those things you feel like you've run a marathon after, you know, a 12 hour day. And, uh, you're more so like more mentally tired than anything. And, and, but I, I did think that it, they did a really great job of kind of showing, you know, what it really takes to open up a restaurant. I think a lot of people are like, Oh, it'll be great. Like I'll have my friends there. We just serve good food. Uh, you know, I'll just hire somebody to be a server. How hard can it be to hire a server? And the, the level of professionalism that it actually takes is, uh, is, is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. No, there's that, that really great moment in the last episode where it's like, it's really frantic in the kitchen. And then we go through the door into the dining room and it's like Liz Fair is playing and people are like enjoying the food and, and sipping wine or whatever. And it's like, and it's dimly lit and it's like very calm. And it's like such a stark, you know, it's like such a stark contrast. You know, we see Sydney's father, you know, having dinner, you know, Natalie's there with her husband. It's like Pete, it's like, you know, it, and, and meanwhile, the kitchen is like completely going down in flames. And yeah, of course it's <laughs> and of course it's it's Richie who steps up, which is uh such an improbable hero story for him. Well, yeah. Uh, by the way, there's no way you can expel yourself out of that in five minutes. That I was like, okay, you could have at least given him fifteen minutes. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I think what was like a really important part about that is like when it really starts to click, like you really feel it. It is almost like kind of playing in a band and you're like really starting to get it. And there's really no other feeling like that in the world where you like, you start to see everything coming together. And I think that's why we do it. That's why, uh, you know, a lot of chefs continue to push to try to do their own thing. Um, and you know, because they have something to say and they have, um, uh, like a lot that they want to show the world, uh, through their food. And, and when it really comes together, it's like very, however tiring it is, extremely gratifying. Yeah, and then so obviously the the one major plot point in season ten is that Carmi's uh, Carmi's lack of uh, attention to detail, not not getting the walk-in door fixed, uh, ultimately comes to bite him, and he gets locked in there and misses the essentially the entire service. Right. Do people really get locked in walk-ins? I mean, I I feel like the the few times I've been in one, there's a button you can push that's like the emergency exit. Yeah, you don't get locked in the walk-in like that, but I don't know where else like where he could have been to get locked in for the show at least uh yeah you can you can unscrew the handle um <laughs> but uh but i think that uh you know i think that that was like a really important part of the show though to kind of show that that level of stress uh versus like what actually can happen um right yeah. no a dramatic license right for sure <laughs> um what did you think of the menu i mean it's a little bit hard to follow you know, they say they're doing nine courses. It's a little bit hard to follow exactly what they were serving. You know, we saw that that T-bone. We know we know there was a focaccia. We know there was uh, a pasta course. You know, the, there was a dish inspired by the the Feast of the Seven Fishes, which is obviously the key the key meal in in episode six, the flashback episode. I don't know what did, what did you think? Of, how did how did the food look? Would you would you hey. eat that menu? Would you go Would you go to the bear? Oh, I'd totally go to the bear. I, I will say it looks pretty heavy, though. So, 
Uh, I don't know if I would see that in, in, in nine courses. Obviously, again, it's just, it's a TV show, you know, have some fun with it. Um, you know, serving, serving a T-bone for it's like, that's, that's a pretty big cut. So, uh, right. They weren't, they weren't paying for dinner. If, if you look at the way that that menu goes with, with the caviar and the ice cream and, and everything and the, the giant T-bone, I mean, that, that's probably like a, a $250 dinner for two. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's weird because it's like, they really made that transformation big. And it's just interesting to see like how, you know, initially he had that certain amount of money to work with. And he was like, we need, like, actually sometimes budgets do not anymore. Not for me, at least but, like kind of come together on like a cocktail napkin or maybe the back of a pizza box. Uh, and um, just, I think it was just important for uh, viewers to see like really how much it takes to do something, you know, as simple sounding as opening up a restaurant. Right. When they go, uh, you, Oh, you like those plates? They're, they're $55 each. It's like, Oh, well, yeah. I guess, I guess we don't need those after all. We'll, we'll find I don't another like those plate. plates that much. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like, as especially for your first restaurant, you really want everything to be perfect. Like you have had all these ideas in your head for so many years and to actually put it down on paper and to actually see it come together is like, is really, really tough, especially if you're working with a budget. You know, we, we opened with a pretty extreme budget, um, when it was Oxhart, but, uh, like trying to be like, okay, what's more important? Is it the stove or is it these plates? Is it how much I'm paying my staff or like even something as, as dumb as like, how much, uh, soft opening time do we actually have? Like, cause I have to pay for employees this entire time for soft opening that no one else is paying for the food. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought I, I would, Definitely go to the bear. Uh, I'd be really full after it, but uh, I'm sure it'd be, I'm sure it'd be fun. And then I I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, but uh, they I don't think it's been announced whether there's going to be a season three yet. We all sort of assume that there will be. You know, we we kind of have the foreshadowing of of you know Sydney wants to earn a star, and then they spend a lot of time. Well, not a lot of time, but enough time to kind of drive them to the point that even successful restaurants don't always make it. Do you have a sense? I mean, or you know, is is the bear is the bear going to earn a star or is the bear going to close? I assume that they're going to earn a star. I actually think that I would actually like to see them be very success, successful and learn how to deal with it. Because with a certain amount of success, there's like a level of uh, you feel a lot more uh, pressure to continue to perform. Especially too is like I think it foreshadowed like a relationship between Sydney and Marcus and trying to deal with those relationships within, within the, uh, restaurant too. Um, you mean like, you, know, you mean I like when it. the food critic of the daily paper says your six month old restaurant is the best restaurant in the city, that, that yeah, kind of pressure. That was, uh, that, I, I don't, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a blur in time over, <laughs> over there where, uh, I try not to remember all the things that just, uh, yeah, that one was a, that one was a tough one to, to quite, to try to understand. But man, it really kind of set us up for uh, for a good amount of success. But so, hopefully, you lived up to expectations. <laughs> All right, chef. Any other thoughts on the bear? I just again, like, I just want to reiterate, like, you know, maybe except for like ratatouille, this is probably the closest thing I think you'll see in something like a like a real restaurant. And I think I hope people really enjoy like kind of like those that little detail work of seeing like if you ask yourself. Does it really take this? Does it take this level of concentration to do something again as simple as 
quote unquote simple as opening up a restaurant. I, I, not only is it, I think, a, a fun like introspection on like human nature, but then also like a really great insight into, uh, you know, how maybe your favorite restaurant works. All right. I'm going to say that does it for our recap of season two of The Bear. We'll be right back with the restaurant of the week. Stick around. Justin, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk to you about Josephine's Gulf Coast Tradition. This is the new seafood restaurant in Midtown from the owner of the or from from the Azuma Group, which is the the company behind Katarobata, Azuma, Soma Sushi. It replaces Izakaya in Midtown, and it is led by Chef Lucas McKinney, who uh, is a Mississippi boy who spent quite a bit of time working for. Chris Shepard at Underbelly Hospitality across Hay Merchant, Georgia James, GJ Tavern. You know, he kind of he kind of had the full the full gamut at at Underbelly. Justin, I'm going to say we had a pretty good we had a pretty good meal at at Josephine's. What did what did you think? I mean, I would say that you will not be lacking in flavors over at Josephine's. That there is not really. A uh, point in time where you're eating the food there um, throughout the whole gamut of food, and it's a large menu where you don't have like a, some really bombastic, delicious flavors in your mouth. Um, I thought, especially, you know, I generally don't try to go to restaurants um, within their first month, let alone like their first week. But I guess when you're hanging out with Eric Sandler, you get you, you get to do some fun new things. Um, <laughs> but I think they really handled the opening really well. Um, I've heard nothing but great, great reviews from other people. And we had a really good meal there. I, I would say that, you know, I, I tend to, I, you know, I hate it when people just, you know, because, you know, as in, I'm in the industry, like don't have anything uh, constructively critical to say. Um, but I would say like, it's, it's a lot of the way there. I think the food is a lot of the way there. I think it is, it's like one of those restaurants where uh, Lucas has been probably thinking about a lot of these recipes for a really long time. Um, and it really shows there's like, there's a level of finesse to almost every single one of the dishes that we had. And to, to be at, in that space. So only a weekend is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, I, I like that, you know, Lucas, we, we both know Lucas, uh, Lucas sat down with us for a few minutes once we kind of had wrapped up the, the savory portion of the evening. And, and you said something to him about, you know, I'm surprised you, you know, you have gumbo, you have po'boys, you have, you know, you have all this, this kind of really classic Southern stuff on the menu. You know, did you, did, did ownership kind of tell you that you had to do that? And he was like, no, I, I want to do this. Like, this is, if I'm going to represent the Gulf coast, like these are the dishes we have to have. So I, I, I think, I think you're right. I think it's really clear that like, this is food that he's, he's really passionate about and, and he knows really well. And I think that's, that's reflected in in the quality of what we we ate for the most part. What were maybe two or three of your your favorite things that we had, and th- and then we'll do and then we'll do a little constructive criticism. Sure. Um, obviously, I mean, I know that he has a really fantastic pastry chef. Um, I forget her name. Is it Emily um, Rivas? But, I think. Right, Emily. Yes, but those biscuits were really really fantastic, and and I know that a lot of people are like, well. A good biscuit is a great biscuit, but even a bad biscuit is a good biscuit. But I would say that that is not the case with this. I think they were a really excellent version of something that 
is really simple and that can be messed up. Um, they were really fluffy and really crispy on the outside. Uh, the condiments were really delicious and it really made sense in, in the, in the context of the meal. Um, I really love the whole fish. I think that, I think you and I probably agree that that was the dish of the night. And again, that's just a dish that can be re- like messed up really easily. So they were running a special. Um, it was a, it was a whole butterfly snapper. Um, it was cornmeal crusted and fried and it was just perfectly fried. Like really, like, you know, the head was still on it, the tail was still on it, all those really delicious bits that I really think that people should serve head on, tail on, fins on, fried, uh, fried fish more often. But it was, it was fluffy on the inside, crispy on the outside. It had a really delicious fennel slaw over top of it. And again, if you go that simple, it's really easy to, to mess it up because there's not really much that you can hide behind it. Um, but everything really came together. And I think that both of us probably agree that that was our favorite dish of the night. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. That was, that was, uh, an off the menu special, super tasty. I like that they're doing, you know, oyster, like raw oysters, but, but like from, you know, curated, you know, uh, barrier beauties, murder points, uh, a couple of reefs. I, I wasn't familiar with a couple of producers. I wasn't familiar with. You know that black pepper mignonette I thought was a was a big winner. I really liked the the blue crab fingers with the with the fish sauce and the herbs, kind of almost a Vietnamese style uh, preparation. Yeah. And and that smoked redfish dip, I you know I you know I said this to you while we were eating. I mean you know uh, smoked fish is is like a very like fundamental like flavor for me and and something I always look forward to. I like that it was chunky. You know, I like yeah. that you could tell that it was still fish. I like that that it it had some texture to it, and that it wasn't like pureed in the in the mush. I I, I yeah. thought that was a a really smart decision. Yeah, it's like you know, getting to know like there's an integrity to the dish, knowing that you know it's like kind of like mostly like forked together as opposed to like just run through the you know run through the rebuku uh, to turn into a puree. Yeah, and and I thought that shrimp and grits that he's doing with the the bacon. Uh, it's a little heartier than than like a just and and with the mushrooms on top, it, it's a it looks a little more interesting. It's a little heartier than kind of a just just like if it were only shrimp and only grits. Yeah, they had like a sauce creole with it, um, and and I think that's an interesting choice, especially too. You know, when we asked them, because I think our favorite dishes were the ones that were definitely inspired by the Gulf Coast, but had a lot more of its personality in it. Um, maybe except for the biscuits, like the, the things that were maybe a little bit more classic, I think we, um, you know, wanted a little bit more, but, um, they're all good versions of, of classic dishes. But the ones that I think that really jumped out at the, at me the most, um, were the dishes that, you know, had a little bit, I mean, this is a restaurant named for his great grandmother and, and apparently a, a sunken ship. Yeah, um, a famous shipwreck, <laughs> apparently in Biloxi. I, I didn't know about that either. Um, but you know, that, that personality I think is really, uh, in, in food that is honestly like you can, you can find pretty consistently in Houston is what I think really kind of sets it apart. Right. I mean, you know, in terms of like, I don't know that anything missed for me. I, I just, there were dishes I liked a little less than, than the dishes I like more, you know, the barbecue shrimp comes to mind. I just thought, you know, if you're going to call it barbecue shrimp, it's got to have that kind of rich buttery sauce. This leaned a little more heavily on the vinegar. And then, but I, I ran into somebody uh, Saturday and I said, Oh, you know, barbecue shrimp. And he's like, Oh, I'm an acid head. I loved, I love that preparation. I don't, I don't need all the butter, 
of a, a traditional barbecue shrimp? I mean, I can't say that I've eaten a ton of barbecue shrimp over my life, like maybe not like Fulmer or anybody, but, but I would say, you know, to me, that's just like kind of like, uh, you know, watch out on like how you, how you name things just to kind of temper expectations. I'd say that like it was a good barbecue shrimp dish, but if you didn't call it barbecue shrimp, I would say it's one of the better shrimp dishes in Houston. Um, but if you had that expectation of wanting it to be, what maybe a classic barbecue shrimp is, uh, you, you it might not get there for you. Um, I think maybe the only one dish that um, that didn't quite make it for me was the crispy ribs, which which I think more so is just like an initial preparation thing. I think the 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 sauce itself was really really delicious. They maybe could have been braised a little bit longer before they were fried or something like that. Yeah, I, they were just a little bit a little bit chewy. You know, we know from Texas barbecue, like we want a little pull, but but we uh, maybe just a little bit under, but man, those but, desserts. Know, again, it's their first week. It's, it's right. Their it's first their first week. week. They're going to the first week. And that's an and, easy fix. And it's a huge menu. I mean, like they are really going for it. They, the, it is, it is a very large menu. It's, it's a large restaurant. Um, you know, Lucas is not holding back, not even, not even a little bit. And then from, from the sounds of it, he's they're, they're going to continue to push. And that's really, really exciting. No. And, and in fact, they're already open. Like, this is their second full week and they're already open for lunch. So they're not, they're not, they're not wasting any time. And I mean, you know, just looking at the menu, I mean, I have, I have a ton of stuff I'd like to go back, uh, you know, that, that we didn't get the chance to try. I mean, the, the boiler potato salad with the andouille and the aioli, uh, you know, certainly a po' boy at some point, certainly that half shell grilled redfish. I mean, you know, I've seen that pop up on, on Instagram quite a bit. It looks delicious. So, you know, we didn't get red beans and rice. I, I mean, or gumbo. I, I have a lot on this menu that I that I want to try. And I, I you know, the, the standard on this podcast is, would you go back? And and I can't, I can't wait to go back. I mean, even, you know, even with just the amount of, like, food that they're doing, uh, the, the amount, the, the quality that it came out of, is, I think, is, is really remarkable. But then also, like, the fact that you take a look at the menu and you're like already planning your next trip, I think is a sign of a, of people that really understand themselves. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've been eating, you know, kind of elevated seafood at both Navy blue and, and little's oyster bar, which I've really enjoyed, but, but I do appreciate kind of the value of this menu. I mean, you know, apps in the $15 range, you know, $3, you know, not just Gulf oysters, but like well-sourced Gulf coast oysters. You know, I think the most expensive thing we had was the, that that gigantic snapper fillet was forty two bucks uh, off the menu. And, yeah, and it's forty two dollars. Like, and and it fed, and, and we could have right, and it would have been an entree. That, I mean, we split it as two people with a bunch of other food, but but you know, we could have easily had a, a third or fourth person with us and and eaten pretty well on it. So, you know, I I, I just uh, I'm very impressed by by everything we experienced at Josephine's. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I think I said this during during dinner as well. I think probably the only thing that that could keep me from going back is the fact that I don't dine in Midtown all that often. I kind of use Midtown mostly as like for two things: either go grab wine at thirteen or to go dancing at Barbarella or something like that. Um, but uh, it, and especially too, I think again, it's just like I, I really hope that and I know I know we talked to Jan a little bit, who I actually worked for. Uh, a really, really long time ago, uh, he's the owner of the Azuma Group, or one of the owners of Azuma Group. 
they're still working on the dining room. And I, the only thing I would say is that I really wish they would, um, and this is a personal preference, so take it for whatever, whatever you wish. Uh, you know, I think like the vibrancy of the dining room, I, I really should match the food. I would maybe turn the music up by a little bit and maybe turn like, the lights down by a little bit. But like, it's just like those, there's like a lot of big, brash, bombastic flavors. Um, and, and a lot of food that you could use both for like an everyday use and, uh, you know, special occasion use. Um, I, you know, I think they're still working on the dining room. Um, and, uh, that's going to be uh, a lot of fun. Right. And right. Like you said, they still, they're still working on the dining room. There's a whole back patio situation, um, that won't be ready until the weather cools off. You know, there's a, there's an oyster bar, uh, that they built, you know, they took out the dumpling bar, replaced it with an oyster bar. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a pretty looking, you know, that the new floor, the, the new lights, I mean, it all, it all, it all looks the part. It feels good in there. Yeah. It feels, it feels good in there. I, you know, I it can't wait till it's like super full of people and just kind of, it's just like, you know, there's, I, I think it, for me, the, the room doesn't quite match the food yet, even though it's, a, it's still a pretty room. Well, Justin, anything else on Josephine's? No, I think y'all should go. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, well, I'm going to say that does it for the restaurants of the week. Justin, you, thanks so much for doing this. You're very welcome. That does it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening. Join me Thursday when I'll be joined by Chef Sonny Vora of the Meat and Cheese Project.